Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen, and on this week's special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we talk about which ministers we think are the worst, which front benches we think are the worst, and... I interview John Ridding, CEO of Room to Read, plus a special holiday-themed You Ask Us. Hello and welcome to an, I say, a pre-potted episode of the New Statesman podcast. Uh, Stephen and I are both on holiday this week, so this is something we cooked up for you a week earlier i really hope there's not some like <laughs> we're gonna look so bad if Theresa may's government finally falls it suddenly occurs to me there are sort of a couple of horrendous possibilities one is the government well i think is if the government falls right that ruins the holiday because we just have to get you know planes or trains back from our respective locations. so at least that kind of fixes itself my sudden fear is so the pre thing we're doing is we're going to be doing effectively a 10 minute hate on our least favorite ministers and front benches now what would we do if richard grayling Wow, a sort of terrible conglomeration of Richard Bergen and Chris Grayling, imagine it. If Chris Grayling or Richard Bergen have died by the time this podcast comes to air... I think we probably just wouldn't put it out. I guess we just wouldn't. But they both look very well, so let's keep our fingers crossed. But also, you kind of... Bit of a spoiler alert about who we think are the worst ministers. I have sparred with Richard Bergen, who is Labour's shadow justice spokesman, before when I said, was he in a witness protection programme? Since then, I have sort of not revised that view. I know you, well, you know I'm interested in prisons policy anyway. The one that maybe interests you more is drugs policy, and which kind of feeds into prisons policy too, right? We have huge amounts of spice, uh, these psychoactive substances going into to prisons, and we really aren't kind of dealing with that very well. But They're intimately linked, in my view, partly because of the amount of drugs there are in our prisons, but because... One of the central problems is we send too many people, as you know, we send too many people to prison for too many short sentences. And uh, many of the people we send to prison actually go deeper into crime. Prison is just bad most of the time. It is a really ineffective tool of, of criminal justice policy. And a large number of people who should not be in prison are there for drugs-related offences. So I think the two are inextricably linked. I guess drugs policy particularly bothers me because um, the orthodoxy on it has moved for so many reasons because of various campaigning groups. Well, not least is you've now got a generation of ministers who most of them, unless they were chronically dull, might have come a bit near a spliff at university on the basis that loads and loads of people that happens to. Yeah, and they can't, even if you yourself haven't, you can't really claim the 
you can't go, oh, well, everyone I know who's done that has lived a life of... Has died of yeah. cannabis, yeah. Things I simply do not buy the argument that our political parties could not have a, a more enlightened, more science-based position on drugs. I just, I, I mean, if, if, if someone can find me the voter who is currently voting for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, who if Richard Bergen went, of course, we will legalise the sale of cannabis as opposed to this kind of mimsy, you know, waiting until, you know, the world's most photogenic child was, you know, on the verge of dying. Yeah, for medicinal purposes, we're cool with that. With prisons, again, I think the, the, the maddening thing is, is one, there doesn't seem to be any particular Labour presence in terms of getting into the teeth of uh, a pretty rubbish area of government policy. But two, yeah, this whole kind of, oh, we just need to pay prison officers more. It's just like, well, I'm fine. I'm not opposed to paying prisoners officers more i would also like there to be fewer of them because we should have fewer people in prison right i think one of the things that struck me when i went into those prisons the year before last was that starting salary is low twenty thousands for a prison officer and you know the amount of spice that you can essentially smuggle into prison up your bum is about eight grand so if you think about that about the, the potential for corruption there most prison officers aren't and, and do a very very difficult job for very low pay but as a kind of crude economic incentive to break the rules the price of street drugs is is you know is just astonishingly high. So that's Richard Bergen. Sorry, Richard, if you're listening to the podcast, you probably didn't enjoy that segment, but you might enjoy this one, Chris Grayling. I mean, Chris Grayling, like, where do I begin with Chris Grayling? That man has got the opposite of a Midas touch. I think the thing is also at least Richard Bergen's presence in the shadow cabinet is explicable because there weren't very many Corbynites, and he was willing to be in the shadow cabinet when almost no one else was. Yeah, fine, right? Chris Grayling's one purpose in the cabinet is, as someone who is loyal to Brexit and loyal to Theresa May, as someone who guarantees her sufficiently Brexit credentials, her sufficiently Brexit credentials are gone. They've been blown to pieces. So why is he still there? It's not because of his record of delivery. He's failed in every department he's in. It's not because of his following in the parliamentary party. It's not because of his standing in the Conservative it's Party. because of his raw sexual charisma, in Stephen. The, in the country. I mean, he's just... He's not good on telly. It's not like one of those things where you go, oh, well, okay, I'm not sure that Barry Gardner is the most effective you know, ministerial head, but actually, you know what, you can put him on a sofa and he doesn't disgrace himself. Chris Grayling is like, it's like what, I mean, it's not like, I was going to say, it's like watching paint dry. It's like watching Ian Duncan Smith dry. I mean, it's bad. Yeah, I think basically all of the other bad ministers, I mean, again, Ian Duncan Smith, I think is probably the contender for the worst cabinet minister. But he's like Hall of Fame bad, right? In the sense that he just went into a department when I've got a faith-based proposition and I will, the harbinger of Brexit, uh, if you just believe in it hard enough, it'll work, which is just a bad thing that we should never allow to happen again. But I can at least understand, again, why Ian Duncan yeah, he had a following in the parliamentary party. He had his various boosters in bits of the right-wing press. Fine. Again, I don't like that he's there. I wish he hadn't been there. But at least it's a bad thing and I can understand why the bad thing is happening to me. Chris Grayling is a bad thing then there is no longer a justification for the bad thing happening. Well, that was pretty uh, pretty brutal. Uh, are there any women you think are rubbish just in the interest of gender equality? Any women who I think are rubbish? Well, um, so she's not in the shadow cabinet anymore. But uh, on the Labour side, there is really only one contender for the worst minister Debbie Abrams. I mean, as welfare secretary was essentially invisible, did very little to get the agenda up the news. And then obviously one of the problems that her successor, Margaret Greenwood, who also hasn't pulled up any trees have, is there is no money to reverse any of the conservative cuts and Labour's spending plans assume as a baseline the welfare cap. 
which means you're kind of boxed into a corner because you kind of are started going, this regime is terrible this is making people really unhappy people are having to go to food banks and take out emergency payday loans what are we going to do about it good question yeah and that is hugely because of debbie abrams inability to secure funding to advocate for her brief during the manifesto meeting and that is essentially the big difference between you know with education you had angela rayner going no i want all of this money for the various things i think are important in my brief in shadow home you had diane with a very radical set of proposals about how we treat refugees and asylum seekers and then you have in shadow justice and shadow welfare you have well at least in shadow justice you had richard bergen going oh the problem is there isn't enough money going to prison guards so at least he was asking for a financial commitment Debbie Abrams just did not seem to take the process very seriously. She then, obviously, as people will know, one of my pet peeves are people who are then ungrateful to a political win that was considerably fairer than they Ah, the Jared O'Mara project, if you will. So then when she was accused of bullying, she did that statement going, actually, the leader's office has been unfair to me. No other leader of the opposition in the history of the world would have tolerated a lead on an area of such government vulnerability who was so anonymous and so uh, ineffective. So, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, so you've been rubbish, but you're also apparently so unaware of your rubbishness that you're going to uh, complain about being turfed out of your job finally. Uh, On the conservative side, I mean, it does make you realize there are actually so few of them. Yeah, and, and actually then generally the ones who managed to, because there are so few of them, the ones that managed to reach the cabinet are not, well, pretty Patel. Mm. I think it's actually pretty Patel. While what she was doing was evil, you can't... She was good at it. You can't, yeah, this thing is because, yeah, if we were doing kind of, you know, ministers who I every day wake up in a kind of thing, just be like, oh God, I really wish their fingers weren't near the lever of power. Mm. She would have been a, a, she would have been a very strong contender, but she was running her department I think actually it occurs to me that if you then the overwhelming contender, and it's one of those kind of things that you always kind of miss when you go, oh, who's rubbish? Of course, it's Theresa May herself. And she does not run Downing Street particularly well. The thing I think is really fascinating is that one of the problems with Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill was the using of their office to hold grudges and behave in a way which was both unprofessional, damaging to the government, and upset and created a lot of enemies they didn't need to create within the Conservative Party and outside of it. Now, the fascinating thing is, is since the election, she's had to be more emollient. She's brought in Gavin Barwell, who... Former Croydon MP. Former Croydon MP, well-liked in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Uh, and as her chief comms person, she's brought in Robbie Gibb, formerly of the BBC. And although neither of them, I would say, have behaved anything like as badly as, as the chiefs, civil servants don't feel that they're bullied and, you know, and like, you know, like going into work again. The fascinating thing is both have behaved in ways that I think have been slightly unprofessional and I don't think are ways they would have behaved before they arrived. So there is clearly an institutional culture problem. So, I mean, Robbie Gibb, for example, getting in that public spat with Christian Guru Murphy about him being biased. And he's just like, mate, you're a public servant. You're not some rando activist having a a weird row about Brexit. But also, I mean, uh, you know, I've met Robbie Gibber quite a lot because he used to be in charge of the Sunday politics, which I used to be a regular on. And, you know, he came from being a conservative student to working at the BBC to then going to work for the Conservative Party. So I don't think there's any argument about where his ideological underpinnings are. The question is whether or not he put them aside during the time he was at the BBC. And I think 
by and large, there are. I am okay with the idea that people who work from the BBC have their own ideologies. They just have to put them aside when they're at work. But I agree with you. It, it was a bit pearl clutchy to go, how could you possibly say I have uh, political opinions? It's like, you left the BBC to go and work for the Conservative Party, I think. Yeah, QED. I, mean, I also think, so the thing I'm a bit yeah, on is, although obviously you know, loads of people who work in broadcasting have politics and that's fine and most of them do put them to one side, because Robbie often seems to interpret all analysis that is unfavourable to the Conservative Party leadership as politically motivated or as some kind of political animus, it is quite hard to look back at the decisions he made as producer and not go, well, if this is your lens through which you view every criticism of your politics now, it's hard for me to accept your rationale for the decisions you made at the BBC. But I just think in general, and so Gavin Bowles, who I have a huge amount of time for as an operator, et cetera, et cetera, did still have those weird briefings with the pro-Brexit journalists about uh, checkers, which, as in the words of one of the civil servants who had to do some of the pre-prep for it, they just said, as far as I, they said, I don't understand what the point of those were for. It was widely leaked because it annoyed all of the people in there. And it did essentially feel like him calling them in there to be like, and another thing I don't like about your characterization of Brexit, which I think. You know, one of the main qualities of a leader that we kind of underrate is their ability to get everyone who works for them to anticipate their demands without them being asked. And it feels to me that one of the fascinating things about May is the demand that she gets people to anticipate is engage in petty acts of recrimination that will not help you or your side. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I'm joined by John Ridding, CEO of the Financial Times and the new global chair of Room to Read. I went to Nepal earlier this year with the charity and had an incredible time learning about particularly girls' education. I talked to some girls who had been former Kamlari indentured servants and were now catching up on their education too late. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I got into knowing about Room to Read because of a breakfast that you had where you talked about your experiences in the country, some of the countries you'd visited. Can you tell us a bit more about them? Sure. Well, I first came across Room to Read when I was a reporter um, based in Asia and um, came across the founder, John Wood, who was uh, explaining the mission and the importance of the mission and just how many people were illiterate, particularly um, children, particularly girls. But at that time, it was very much sort of data-based and I was looking at the data. I'm an FT journalist, so very um, preoccupied by the data. But I think the real moment of impact was um, when I went on a trek uh, to Cambodia uh, in 2007, um, and it was near Angkor Wat, and just seeing the enthusiasm and the hunger of the children, and particularly the girls for education, many of whom had very difficult home stories, um, alcoholic fathers, broken families, um, having to stay at home to work to help make a living. And, and generally the girls, if, if anyone was going to school, it would be the boys, the, the girls didn't get there. Um, and I remember in particular seeing a speech from a girl called Dum Hawe, 
who was representing Room to Read in front of some pretty intimidating uh, local um, officials and did so with tremendous confidence and energy. Um, and I think that just made the whole thing real and memorable. And obviously the, the data and statistics are crucially important. It's a very data-driven and um, efficient organization. We take the data very importantly, but it's really when you see uh, the children um, and what it means to them and how hungry they are for learning. And then quite often when one comes back um, to the UK or, or anywhere else and you know, school can sometimes seem a bit of a, a chore for children and do I have to go? And then you kind of explain what a privilege it is and how fortunate they are. That makes a difference. I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting about my trip was understanding really how much change you can make by increasing child literacy. And in a world which our problems sometimes seem so big and so hard to tackle, actually the real difference that is made just by getting more more children into school and, and getting them to stay in school. As you say, the girls were particularly, um, it's one of my focuses too, you know, talking about the fact that I talked to one girl who was taking her brother's exercise books, you know, which had been done in pencil, soaking the pencil marks out so that she could use them again because she couldn't get her own her own textbooks. Um, and the Millennium Development Goals, which were about child literacy, have now moved now into sustainable development goals. But can you talk to me a, a bit more about what the kind of effects of, of, of increasing literacy are? Yes, they are broad and they are deep. And, you know, frankly, my day job is the FT. And I personally feel that many of the problems um, and crises that we, we cover uh, and write about and report would be addressed more easily earlier if there were more educated and literate people, whether it's economic development. I think it's shown that a more literate um, society, particularly with women more involved in the workforce, is, is wealthier. They generate more income for their families and for society. Uh, whether it's health and health-related issues. There's a study by uh, Jean Sperling, published by the Council of Foreign Relations, that shows that every extra year um, a, a girl spends in school, or a, a woman, um, reduces infant mortality um, by 10 to 15%. Um, the environment, environmental awareness, um, conflict situations. So many of the big issues that um, then develop and become major problems that we report about actually quite often have their roots in a, in a lack of education. So, so many problems that um, uh, we face now would be uh, addressed more effectively with a more literate population. And the numbers are staggering. I think it's something like 758 million people in the world are illiterate. Two thirds of those uh, are women and girls. And something like 250 million um, children across the world aren't in primary school. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a big, big challenge. I think that was one of the things that really came quite strongly across to me is that increasing female literacy, increasing female participation in the workforce just gives women, because they have economic power, it gives them huge social power as well, you know, and the ability to resist getting married very young. We went to um, a village in Bada province in which we met um, a woman who's only 10 years older than me, but she'd been married at the age of nine. Um, and her daughter had been put into indentured servitude because they, uh, you know, they they lived in a very scrappy part of the country where, you know, um, they kept, they were saying, well, we have elephants here. And I kind of went, oh, elephants, amazing. And they said, well, no, they, what happens is that they, the elephants come and charge through the barn and they destroy it. And then we have to rebuild it because we don't have any insurance because we're technically squatters. You know, the tigers come out of the forest and eat our goats that we rely on for, for milk. Um so living in this incredibly beautiful landscape, but scratching out a really hard living in it. And actually what happens if you have do educated daughters is they get much more ability to have a say over their own lives. And I think that's what really came across quite strongly to me. And of course, they, there's a the multiplier effect because if you educate 
um, a girl, she becomes a woman and probably a mother, she then can educate her family. So it's a much more, it's obviously fair, is important, but it's obviously much more um, effective and efficient too in spreading literacy and education. And how do you choose the countries in which you operate? Because you have a, quite a lot of countries in the Far East that you are, a couple in sub-Saharan Africa, but you try and avoid ones that are riven by sort of civil war or conflict because you can't, is that right, that you can't just kind of get the penetration of, of help into them? So we're in 15 countries now um, and eager to operate um, wherever we can uh, generate good outcomes. That does involve working closely with local communities and the government because we need to scale um, our presence and our operations. So really it's a question of what that um, partnership looks like. If it can be effective, um, then we're you know, very keen to work in those countries, but we need to have that. Um, as it were, partnership with with government and with local communities, because I think what we don't want to be is, or what we're definitely not, is an organisation that just sort of builds a library or builds a school and then hands it over, because what we've experienced is you need that um, aligned systemic approach that everybody is involved in this project, so that the environment um, in terms of the government and social relationships really, really matters to us. And in Nepal, it moved from a system of picking out girls and trying to help, you know, people who are seen as being at risk of truancy to kind of working across the entire age group. Is that something else that you've, you know, that what was the, what was the research that that was based on that move? I think a lot of our work is based directly on um, education research and pedagogy and, and what works most effectively for sustained um, learning and literacy. Um, and at the moment we're looking at um, even younger cohorts because the research shows that the earlier you start on the literacy uh, journey, um, the more effective it's going to be. And that's the other element, I think, of Room to Read, that it's obviously a very inspirational, um, indeed emotional mission, but it's extremely um, rigorous in terms of how it goes about uh, its methods. Um, we measure things very carefully. We publish uh, an annual report which shows, for instance, that in every um, country in which we operate, that the the results in terms of literacy, which effectively is words read per minute at the key levels of 20 words a minute or 45 words a minute, um, outscore the government schools by a margin in, in every single case. And that's really the result of um, having a very effective system, training the teachers, training the teachers' assistants, and most recently, um, developing a cohort of room to read um, teams, which I saw in action in northern India called Social Mobilizers. And mm. they are women typically in their sort of 20s, I guess, maybe early 30s, whose role is to um, be mentors to girls in the local community, girls whose family's first thought wasn't, well, you should go to school, <laughs> actually, quite often that's very far from being their first thought. But these social mobilizers develop relationships with girls and with their families, um, explain to them they have absolutely a right to be um, educated, that it's a valuable thing, making the family feel at ease with that. And then being there in the schools with the girls and helping them um, deal with some of the prejudices um, and some of the challenges they, they face. I met a couple of um, social mobilisers and we sat in on a lesson actually that was about, it was what we'd call kind of PSHE. It was about um, menstruation and, and sexual consent as well, actually, just about saying no and about knowing your body. And I thought, this is a lot better than the lessons that I had admittedly now some 15 <laughs> years ago. But it was, a, it, it kind of speaks back to your point about, the, you know, because this has all been very rigorously data-driven, in some cases it's 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 of a higher standard than yes. you get in, in Britain, yeah. where we've developed this system much more piecemeal over time. Apart from cash, what are the things that are stopping you? What are the roadblocks? I think that uh, obviously 
the more funding we have, the more the more we can do. Um, I think it's teacher training, making sure that um, we have enough high standard um, teachers, librarians, the obviously infrastructure, we, we need to have appropriate infrastructure to deliver. Um, partnerships where we, we are looking for and developing very effective partnerships with government, but also with businesses to um, uh, do projects together. We've just done something very innovative in Indonesia with, with Google around um, making um, uh, visual and video um, uh, versions of our, of our books. So um, it's really just trying to trying to um, find innovations and um, funds to un unlock some of the blocks to scale that, that we see. And what has been your favourite moment in all your time working with Room to Read? Well, it's def definitely that um, audience I had with um, Dom Harway in, in Cambodia. When I think back, it's very vivid. I can actually see the room. And it was particularly vivid because John Wood, um, the founder of Room to Read, had um, been bitten by a poisonous spider, I think, in Sri Lanka. Um, being John Wood, he, he persisted and bitten him near the eye. He was in agony. So he gave this incredible speech, <laughs> biting his oh my God. <laughs> in, in terrible pain, as any John Wood would. Um, and then Dom Harway um, managed to upstage him, frankly, by giving this very passionate speech um, from the heart about her personal um, and family benefits from room treat education. And even these hardened party carders in the audience who were from the regional government. You could see they were pretty moved by that. And I've kept in touch with Harway. She, like many Room to Read girls, went through secondary school and then went to university and now works for NGOs um, and has a wonderful career and spreads the word about literacy and Room to Read herself. Well, that's a wonderful story. Thank you very much. That was John Ridding, CEO of the Financial Times and Global Chair of Room to Read. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And you know what people have asked me this week, Stephen? Where are you going on a holiday, Helen? And my answer to that is Madrid. I'm hoping to go to some museums, the Prado, for example. Do tweet me if you think there are any other things in Madrid you think I would enjoy. Where are you going on holiday, Stephen? Um, we're going to Lyon because obviously we fear that we won't be able to for very much longer. My partner is uh, Frank Farr, speaks fluent French. I speak very um, poor per. French. But we will go. I'm maybe planning to carry through on the threat I make every time we go, which is to pretend to be some visiting diplomat and start yelling and demanding that she translates things to me. We're going to do some museum crawls and you know, various things. So, you know, it'll be a good time. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, hosted by me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Parliament is now back, and although Stephen and I are away, there is still Morning Call, so do still sign up by googling Stephen Bush Morning Call. Morning Call.